This episode is sponsored by Watershed. Businesses are critical actors in the race to decarbonize. Watershed is modern software for helping them turn carbon data into actions that can reduce emissions in weeks, not years. For more information, please visit watershedclimate.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how one company bakes sustainability into food design, how Britain aims to decarbonize heavy industry, why regenerative agriculture won't solve the fashion industry's pollution problems, and can you defend your company's recycling claims? We're chasing arrows this week on 350. It's August 6th, 2021. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, working much harder than she'd like for an August day, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. What happened to July (laughs) and June and May? (laughs) Actually, what happened to the first half? I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah, considering considering that 2020 was about two and a half years long. Twenty twenty one is well over half over, and oh my god, yeah. Uh, you know what though, I it it's just so hard not to be excited and energized about the possibilities right now. Um, but yeah, it is a little crazy busy <laughs> for an August. It used to be a pause, right? There used to be like some pause, and maybe Europe will be on vacation <laughs> in about a week, so maybe it will slow down. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, we, we we take time off when we can. I'm going to do that next week. Uh, just not going anywhere, certainly not overnight, maybe some day trips, but just not having Zoom meetings or meetings, mm. period. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm just going to do that work on some personal home and, and writing passion projects and, um, you know, be in a slightly different headspace. But that's that's about all you can ask in August these days. It used to be, uh, let's take it off and start again after Labor Day. But yeah, things are happening. The, the, the news continues to come in. Uh, stories, uh, this space we're in is white hot, or it's maybe it's green hot, but it's hot. And uh, the ESG hiring stories I've been doing have been, yeah. you know, blowing up. But but also just the announcements coming from from companies continue unabated, and it's a it's just a really interesting time in this space. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, Indeed. But um, enough with the preamble. Let's get right into the week in review. Yeah, I'm not sure what to start with, Joel, actually, because they're all so, such compelling stories. But let's let's go to Lauren Phipps's treatise um, based on uh, on a lawsuit that Greenpeace filed against Walmart about recyclability. And she ponders the issue and the question of, are you as a company prepared to defend your recyclability claims? So uh, to, to give a little bit of background here, 
December is when this started. Walmart was sued for allegedly deceiving consumers about its private label product packaging and the recyclability thereof. And, you, you know, usually we see things, um, you know, like on Twitter or, or you know, Facebook or, or so forth, social media, uh, criticizing companies for, for, for talking about recycling and how, how their package, packaging is recyclable. But this came in the form of a lawsuit. So it's, it's serious. Um, and it focuses on just sort of the, the, frankly, the definition, right? Because I, I didn't, actually didn't really realize this. Um, of course, I should have. But there is a, a Federal Trade Commission guide that really lays out what recycle, you know, what what you can call recyclable, and it can't be called recyclable un, quote unless it can be collected, separated, or otherwise recovered from the waste stream through an established recycling program for reuse or use in manufacturing or assembling another item. End quote. Um, which is another way of saying it's not recyclable if unless someone can actually recycle it in exactly. their community. Right, but exactly. And I think that's the point. It, 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 I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've looked at packages at, in my own home and, and it has, you know, in the fine print, you know, based on local capabilities. And you're kind of like, well, what are my local capabilities? So, you know, the, 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 this is just not, it's not really a new issue. I mean, we've been talking about this here on the program for quite a while, but this is, um, Walmart is being specifically called out for it. I mean, they're big and of course they're easy to call out, but I think it's, um, a great, uh, wake up call for marketers and for sustainability teams that are, that are trying to sort out exactly how they describe their packaging policies. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, and Walmart, that's not the only lawsuit. Uh, there's another one. It's, uh, Lauren didn't write about it here, but actually one of the organizations, uh, an NGO called the last beach cleanup, which is involved uh, with Greenpeace in the suit against Walmart has another lawsuit filed in March uh, right here in Oakland, California with Alameda County against TerraCycle, which, as you know, that's said a uh, sort of an environmental darling uh, based out there in, in your neck of the woods in Trenton, New Jersey, where they've been working with big brands to turn unrecyclable things, everything from juice boxes to cigarette butts to, you know, who have, into, into new things. And and uh, working with brands who uh, collect these things or, re or, or enable to recycle to collect these things, the brand gets some brand halo about their packaging not being wasteful, et cetera. Last Beach Cleanup filed a suit against TerraCycle saying, you know what? A lot of what you're claiming ain't true. They, they use example, it's not really recyclable or you're not totally recycling it. They use the case of a uh, of a corn chip uh, that happens to come from Campbell's Soup. It's a brand called Late July. I'm not familiar with it, neither here nor there. But they they continue to claim on the website uh, that that the uh, corn bags, corn chip bags, are recyclable, and they say that's deceptive. And I think that's just one example. Um, uh, and TerraCycle, of course, has a different take on this. They say, no, everything we, we, we do, we, we, we can back. We have certificates. We have all kinds of proof on this. But the point is, is that, yeah, this is uh, gone. The FTC guides date back uh, to, the I think, the 90s uh, or certainly the early 2000s that you were citing a minute ago about what you can call recyclable, among many other rules, things that are in that uh, guide. But this is the first real rush of um, lawsuits. And I think it sort of bodes, uh, well, interestingly, for companies <laughs> to think think yep. uh, again about what they're saying versus what's actually possible. 
Right. And and I want to just throw, I know this isn't, is a little bit off topic, but I want to throw another thing in the mix that I've been thinking about. Um, the, the law in Maine that just got passed, I mean, it's, it's different, but it's, um, I guess it, it points to the, the, the responsibility of brands, but they just passed an extended producer responsibility law that, you know, I think, I don't know, I think it might be the first one here in the United States, but basically saying you're responsible for, for you know, this stuff that you want. <laughs> you can't just throw it on the municipal systems that the brands, the companies need to get more involved in the capacity to collect and recycle this stuff. So I feel like it's a shift. There's definitely a shift happening in terms of the public's expectations of the companies that produce this stuff. Well, let's shift ourselves and not too far. We're going to stay in the realm of food for the next two stories. Um, This first one, well, neither of them is about packaging. It's actually about what goes inside that packaging. Uh, And and one of those stories came from, from associate editor Jesse Klein about a company called Simple Mills. I guess it's maybe counter to general mills. I don't really know, but um, <laughs> it should be called specific mills as opposed to general mills, maybe. But I, I'm not in the rebranding business. Uh, and this is uh, how they are using technology to to uh, really play with uh, the ingredients, uh, but also working directly with farmers to come up with new ingredients that are more sustainable uh, for a range of products uh, to, as they say, combat monoculture farming. So just for example, uh, they uh, were looking at making a pancake mix. They make pancake mixes, uh, packaged cookies, crackers, uh, frostings, and things like that. And they wanted to, you know, look at the alternatives to, you know, flour and and even almond flour or, or some of the other flours. And so they they had an experiment. They went with fifteen to twenty different flours. Uh, they made uh, all kinds of pancakes with all those flours, and they ended up with chestnut flour. And that was mm-hmm. the, the one that I, and, the, and what's really interesting about that, I did not know, chestnut trees are a really powerful carbon sequestration crop yeah. that used to dominate the U.S. landscape, apparently, be, until the, the 1800s. They can grow for over 100 years, so they have a sequester carbon for a, a long, long time. They have long root structures that help to feed the soil. Anyway, they have a lot of attributes and so this is going, you know, how do you then, once you identify that, then work with farmers, mm-hmm. uh, the thousands of small, mostly smaller farmers to pr- provide the ingredients you need for these, let's call them for now, alternative uh, ingredients. But um, hopefully maybe at some point they're more mainstream and no longer alternatives. Anyway, I find this fascinating. And uh, kudos to an old friend of ours, Shauna Sadowski, who used to be with Annie's, which was part of General Mills, <laughs> and she is um, is now heading up a sustainability. She's the vice president of sustainability at Simple Mills. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about this story was the fact that the entire research and development team, the product development team at the company, thinks this way. Right, they're they're looking, they're charged and empowered with thinking about not just whether this ingredient will taste good, will it will it bake well, you know, how will it stand up, how how will it, um, the constitution of it be in a product, but how how is it um, on the environment? How is it on the agriculture? Is it a perennial, which the chestnuts are? Um, is it something that could provide an opportunity? Because I think one of the cool things about this um, right now, I think they're getting the the chestnuts from 
5,000 spontaneous <laughs> orchards. And by that, they mean it, the, the, these were uh, not on plantations. They're, 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 they're out there in, in Italy and Albania. Um, but now this could be an opportunity here in the U.S. to bring back the U.S. chestnut. I actually have a friend um, here in New Jersey who has a, a, a license to be working on this, but it could be a, an interesting kind of agroforestry opportunity. And if you think about the um, intersection of natural climate solutions, right, and planting trees and opportunities for, for farmers and for others that are in agriculture, this is a new opportunity, could, could um, provide new money and at the same time, you know, pot provide powerful climate benefits. So I love that well, angle it too. Jobs, the jobs angle. So so wait, you need to have a license to grow chestnut trees? Well, it's, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the science, but they're trying to um, bring back the U.S. chestnut by uh, high, high, hybrid grafting of um, Japanese, I believe it was from Japan. There's chestnuts from Japan. And so they're doing all this cool, like, Biology, biological genetic work to get the trees back here because uh, it was a blight that that that, that um, different blights that that wiped it out in the first place. It wasn't humans that 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 uh, wiped out the chestnuts here. So it was yeah. So she's got a, a farm down in um, uh, southern New Jersey, and she's got a license to be uh, experimenting. They're still pretty experimental, so that's I think why she needed them. Well the permission so oh that that was a pretty pretty interesting rabbit hole so uh, and rabbits <laughs> by the way uh, i have to say love chestnuts so they're going to complete the cycle but let's <laughs> get over to another uh non-food agricultural Ooh, story this yep. one from Teresa lieb our food systems analyst uh about the how regenerative agriculture is uh, both getting a lot of uptake within the fashion industry let's forget the food part of this this is now cotton and Presumably uh, wool, but uh, you know, but also leather, cashmere, and you know, the headline's a little misleading. It says regenerative agriculture won't solve the fashion industry's pollution problem, and yet um, she talks a lot about uh, this uh, exciting opportunity, as she calls it, for agriculture of regenerative agriculture, which is a kind of agriculture that. Uh, that revives soils, cleans up waterways, protects biodiversity, and mitigates climate change. Uh, I just think, uh, in in many ways, this is far more good news than than not. Yeah, I mean, I what I loved about it, and and yeah, the headline is prov I'll, I'll say provocative. <laughs> um, I think she she does lay out the case for why it's, it is a very good thing for them to be doing um that, that they should be doing this but um she really goes to the consumption issue right and and for in, in two in two senses um i think i think one of the things she's she's kind of griping about is is that land um there's a trade-off right if if you know are you going to use this land for producing uh cotton for a t-shirt that you do you really need that new t-shirt it you know is that consumption model really going to work or should you be looking at ways of growing food more sustainably? Um, and I think that's part of her argument. The other part is just that and it, it goes to the, to the consumption of fashion, the fast fashion movement. And, you know, do you really need a new thing every season? And do I, do these brands keep, you know, producing 12 to 24 collections a year? I mean, like, do we really need these garments? 85% of them end up in landfills Yes, it's important to use those regenerative methods. However, it's also probably more important to think about like how can these materials 
be lasting longer? Um, how can we be recy- uh, recirculating them? I'll use that yeah. that verb. Um, so yeah, I, I also think. I mean, I, I don't I don't disagree with anything, but you know, the the farmer is not responsible for the consumption of of the product. No, and, no, 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 not at and, all. And so, <laughs> so I think we do need to give credit where credit is due in terms of the sustainable uh, ag- regenerative agriculture. Uh, and yes, we absolutely need to take uh, stock of the, the the consumption model and and how do we tame that and train people a little bit differently or just uh, you know think about it differently or create different business models. But uh, you know, let's celebrate that that the fashion industry and is now sourcing uh, a significant amount and a growing amount of its of its raw materials from uh, regenerative sources. It's nowhere near enough. It's it's hardly uh, the majority, but a long way to go. But it seems to be a big development, and yet, you know, sort of once you, it, I, I don't always love it that once you, when you have a good sort of a positive story that you then have to open the can of worms about <laughs> all the problems. And, oh, okay. You know, put the Fair worms enough. back in the soil where they can regenerate. <laughs> things. As governments around the world grapple with their newfound net zero commitments, finding ways to decarbonize so-called hard-to-abate sectors is a particular challenge. Recently, the UK government set out a vision for how emissions produced by high-carbon plants on England's east coast could be captured and stored under the North Sea. It's both novel and probably risky, and it seemed a good time for another check-in with James Murray, Editor-in-Chief of Business Green. Hey, James. Hi, Joan. Good to see you. So give us a little more detail about the plan. And uh, is this a real plan or just a vision? I think it's probably about halfway between the two. So it was originally a sort of vision from the UK government after several sort of abortive attempts to get a carbon capture and storage plant off the ground in the UK. There was a competition that got cancelled. Um, and and a, rain, a number of projects that kind of just got stuck on the shelf for years and years. About two years ago, they, they came forward around the time the UK adopted a net zero target. They said, look, we're going to have to do something about heavy industry emissions. There is no way of getting to net zero without tackling this. And also, there's a big opportunity here to, to develop um, technologies that you could export that could become a template for um, other sectors all around the world. So they launched this this sort of competition for zero what they're calling zero carbon clusters um and what's interesting about that is the emphasis isn't just on carbon capture and storage it's an idea of bringing together a range of different technologies that could help decarbonize heavy industry so you'd have hydrogen there you'd have ammonia there potentially you'd obviously have carbon capture and storage but you'd also have carbon capture and utilization and trying to create these sort of hubs where you could deploy um, these technologies at scale, where they could get the economies of scale, they could make use of the the different transport and storage infrastructure together. Um, and there's a sort of undis- there's there's multiple potentially multiple billions of pounds of funding going towards it, and there's this competition underway currently for various different clusters in the UK to come forward with their proposal. Um, one or two, um, at least two, I think, hopefully more, will be selected to then go forward to the next stage and actually look at delivering some of this stuff. Yeah, talk a little bit about the clusters because that's a concept that really isn't one that's talked about uh, on this side of the Atlantic. And uh, it, it reminds me of the old Kallenborg uh, uh, industrial ecology setup of that goes way back to the, probably the 80s. But w- what's the concept here? around clusters 
Yeah, so the idea is that you essentially take the industrial heartlands of the UK. So, you know, areas like um, the sort of the east coast of Scotland or, or around Edinburgh and up to Aberdeen, which obviously, you know, heavily reliant in the past on on uh, the oil and gas industry um, and and sort of all along the eastern seaboard where you've got the areas in the northeast around Newcastle, Hull, the Humber, uh, Teesside, all these sort of quite, you know, quite famous industrial regions during the Industrial Revolution, back going back sort of 150, 200 years, these, these were the hubs of the first Industrial Revolution with shipbuilding, with coal and the like. Um, and many of them have really struggled in recent years. You know, since the decline of the coal industry in the UK, they've become quite famous for, you know, higher levels of unemployment, um, you know, the several repeated attempts to kind of redevelop these areas and 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 create more jobs in them but you know they they've they've traditionally had sort of economic challenges like the rust belt in the us and and, and other other places that have, have struggled to make this adaptation to, to new industries but they've also still got a lot of heavy industry like a lot of the chemicals industry is based in that area in the uk that's still quite a big industry um and, and emerging industries are locating there as well. So the offshore wind farm manufacturing technologies are going there. Some of the talk of sustainable aviation fuels could go there as well. Um, you've, and you've obviously got gas and coal power plants also, although we are now phasing out the gold power plants. So you've kind of got this, the, this, these established industrial hubs that are already there. And the thinking and, and a source of massive emissions. So uh, the sort of Teesside, Humberside region in the northeast of the UK is by quite some distance, the biggest carbon emitting region in the UK, because it has all those car manufacturing plants, chemicals plants, et cetera, et cetera. And the thinking goes, well, you can, they, they all need to find a way to reduce their emissions. They're obviously going to try and switch to renewable power. They'll obviously try to be more energy efficient, but some of these processes just will struggle to get rid of emissions altogether. So can you massively reduce the cost of carbon capture by integrating them together by have, using the pipelines in, in, in the way in the same way having the skills base there that can move from one plant to the next and deploy the technologies learning by doing um, and really catalyze a, a, a community of heavy industrial plants that can move towards zero emissions and, and trialing a range of different technologies as I say it's not just carbon capture it's also looking at hydrogen seems like a project of this magnitude is going to be primarily the domain of, of the big players. I know you had a, uh, a webinar uh, last month with the BP and National Grid and a number of others. Is that the case? Is, is this primarily going to be big players or is there an opportunity to leverage the innovation of, of startups and, and more emerging technologies? Um, there's three big players in this space. So you've got the government, obviously, you need the policy environment. At the moment, all of this stuff on paper isn't going to happen unless policymakers come in with either seed funding or a carbon price that makes it economically viable. So they're a big player in, in this dynamic. Then, as you say, you've got those big oil and gas majors, energy companies and the like. Um, you mentioned BP, Equinor's there. Uh, Drax is involved, the, the company that's looking to do biomass, carbon capture and storage. Um, you know, big multi-billion pound businesses. But there is also a role for the pioneers as well. So uh, quite a few of these companies are teaming up with some really innovative early stage startups looking at carbon capture and utilization. There's relatively early stage companies looking at ways to improve the hydrogen production process and, and have a role to play there. Uh, you're seeing some of the sustainable aviation companies that again are still in the scale up phase looking at saying, okay, this is a sensible place for us to locate and use our technologies. Maritime fuels as well, um, looking at using ammonia and hydrogen 
that could be produced in these clusters. So yeah, all those three spheres of government, big corporates, and some really interesting innovative startups are all potentially have an interest in, in these cluster plans moving forward. Yeah. What do you see as the big risks here? I mean, there are multiple risks. This is still a very early stage industry. I mean, the, 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 the first one is not getting the policy environment right. So, you know, you can't do this without some form of um, catalyzing policy, whether that's a carbon price or, or, or direct funding. Um, that obviously brings with it concerns about energy bills rising. So who's going to pay for it becomes a, a big question right from the off. That, that could derail this before it's even got started. Uh, you've then obviously got the technical risks. Um, you know, will we be able to capture sufficiently high levels of carbon? Is there a risk of leakage? The companies involved insist that those risks are overblown. They, they say these technologies are actually relatively well established. It's the economic problems you need to overcome more than the technical ones. But others, a lot of environmental campaigners are just very, very wary of, of those potential uh, risks and this starting to go wrong. And then there's kind of this big kind of borderline philosophical debate about is this being used as kind of a lifeline for the fossil fuel industry? And, you know, particularly with the hydrogen stuff, there's this concern that you're just providing them with a, a justification to keep on drilling, to keep on funding exploration, because we're going to use, use natural gas to produce blue hydrogen, we'll capture it, it'll all be fine and clean and safe, and that's great. Um, and it comes back to that question of, of how how much you believe the um, the integrity and the, the 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 sort of the of the fossil fuel companies when they talk about net zero. So, you know, you could make a case and say, look, this is a really valuable ally to have, and they're serious about decarbonising heavy industry, and we need to do that. But a lot of the green groups in the UK are very wary of these projects, and they say, look, this is this is just cover for continued investment in fossil fuel infrastructure and a distraction from renewables and, and, and the really sort of genuinely clean technologies that we need. So there's a concern that that debate could kind of blow up and delay progress on the clusters. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the risk of not doing anything at all. And that's uh, uh, maybe the biggest one of all. Well, uh, we'll continue but, to I mean, watch this. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, sorry, Joe. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, that is just absolutely a huge risk here because there, I can understand why some green groups are wary of this these sectors. But we do have to decarbonize heavy industry. Um, you know, there are areas that are easier to decarbonize and areas that are harder. And this one is harder, but you're not going to just retire the chemicals industry. You're not just going to retire all fossil fuel based power plants everywhere in the world within 10, 15 years. So you do need this type of stuff. And I think it is important that it is pioneered as quickly as possible, even just to see if it works, because if it doesn't work, then at least we'll know and we'll have to look at the alternatives. We'll link to the story on Business Green, uh, Inside the Plans to Decarbonize England's Industrial Heartlands, written by your colleague Cecilia Keating. James Murray is Editor-in-Chief of Business Green. James, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. This week, the International Living Future Institute, best known for its Living Buildings Challenge certification program, named a good friend of ours, Lindsay Baker, as its new CEO. We met Lindsay back in her role as co-founder of the smart building startup Comfy, which was later acquired by Siemens, and then as the global head of sustainability and impact at WeWork. Her latest professional move seemed a good opportunity to catch up with Lindsay, and she joins me now. Hey, Lindsay, congratulations. Oh, thanks, Joel. It's really awesome to be here. So ILFI, uh, what did you see as the big opportunity that prompted you to sign on as CEO? 
Yeah, well, I've been spending a lot of time during the pandemic thinking about the the role that the building movement is playing in the larger climate uh, action world and um, have really been trying to pinpoint the areas that we need to be working harder, that we need to be focusing our attention more. And so it, it was all leading me to get more involved in the world of nonprofits, you know, start to act more a little bit, I guess, on the outside um, rather than the, these inside roles that I've been taking on. And the ILFI opportunity came up and it just felt like a really perfect moment because the organization already has this reputation for being pretty progressive uh, in our industry and thinking a lot about uh, what the what the end goals, what the big vision, the long term should be in our industry. That's the kind of stuff I've always liked thinking about. It's always been the way I frame my work is like, what, what does the future need to look like? And then how we work our way to it. And so it just felt like a place where I could, you know, work with a group of people that saw the world the same way or that wanted to make change in that way. Uh, and yeah, this was just like kind of a, <laughs> this was a really amazing opportunity to do yeah. that. So I'm well, thrilled. Well, I'm, I'm curious on your take on sort of this moment in the building movement. Um, it's one could easily get the sense that the so-called green building movement has kind of slowed down, or at least compared to the mojo of the last couple of decades, or, or has it simply become so mainstream that it's no longer newsworthy? What What is that movement like these days? Yeah, yeah. I think you hit on so many important things there. I've noticed this about green bits, you know, like I read all the stuff and there's all these incredible things happening in clothing and in food and in batteries and in transportation and like, you know, all of that. And, and frankly, like, I think this is correct. Buildings don't get as much play as they did maybe 10 years ago or even five years ago. And so that was part of what I was thinking about, you know, in this, in this past year and a half of like really reflecting, it's like, why are we not getting close? And I think it is, it's a couple of things. One is that the infrastructure of the building industry that was trying to create change um, has really settled in. So like certifications of buildings, accreditation of people, a lot of things, there's also sort of increasing ways that we try to measure and incorporate green into our the valuation of real estate. All that stuff's been going on for a while. And so, yeah, it's not very newsworthy because it's not new. Um, and that, I think, is a good thing that the industry has just operationalized a lot of stuff. But at, all, at the same time, we're not moving fast enough. And I do think we've gotten a little complacent. I think we kind of said, all right, our industry figured out how to green itself. 10 years ago, we're just going to rinse and repeat and keep doing those things. And we'll probably work ourselves out of this crisis that way. And it just hasn't happened. Unfortunately, climate change, pretty big issue, pretty big. And the momentum, if you really look at like the graphs that the UN puts out, the building industry globally is not reducing its carbon footprint, uh, not nearly to the scale that it needs to uh, by 2030, 2050. Uh, but it's also just, you know, the, it, it's it's not even it's not even reducing it yet. It's just kind of flatlining. So, so how do you change that? What what needs to happen, and what will it take to make buildings cool again? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say I love working with buildings because they are so core to human existence on Earth. It's we shelter people, we keep people safe from what it will be increasing threats to our health um, with, you know, increasing climate related disasters. Um, and and, it, and we, we make people feel safe. It's this wonderful 
uh, industry that deserves a lot of attention as we make this transition to a better future together. Um, but yet, what I think needs to happen to some degree is that we need to start admitting that some of these some of these voluntary ways of working aren't moving fast enough. I think we're seeing this all over the board in the business world, and you guys are covering it in some really great ways, by the way, that um, I believe we need to have a little more government involvement. I, leave, I think we need to have better standards for buildings um, because what we've seen a little bit is that the wealthier folks, the white communities are all doing a lot more of this stuff and their buildings are improving, but we're leaving a lot of people behind. And that has to do with some structural inequities in our societies that are keeping those uh, buildings that support people uh, that are not wealthy and white behind the curve of transition. And, and like when you look at what it takes to make that happen, government has to come in, right? There's a lot of ways that we need policy to show up. So I'm excited about policy. I'm excited about advocacy work. I think our industry has started to get a little bit more involved in policy. We've got all these, you know, the natural gas bans, the electrification stuff that's happening. That I think is exciting. I think we need a lot more of that type of behavior where people in the building industry in particular are using their voices, showing up and saying, hey, we know how to build this stuff. We can make it cheap. We can make it elegant. We can make it healthy. But we also need someone to say, you have to do it. Um, and we're also, in the, you know, we're going to support you in doing this so that everybody can get those same transitions accomplished. Yeah. Interesting. One of the, the memes or trends, I don't know, uh, in, in buildings and in sustainability in general is the, the word restorative. Uh, where does that fit into to, uh, ILFI and, and what do you see as an opportunity there in your, in your new role? Yeah, uh, so many things. I guess when you, when you say that word, the thing that comes to mind for me most is this notion of a slightly different word, which is reparative and reparative justice. And this idea that I, I think one of the things we maybe all haven't done very well in envisioning the future is remembering that for a lot of the world, um, this is not just going to be a, an act of creation of the future. It's also going to be repair of things that were broken, of things that have been sick, of things that have been harmed. And in the building industry, that's very true. It, you, I don't know, you know this about me a little bit, but I've never been as interested in the question of what a new building should do differently. I've always been interested in what are we gonna do about all the existing buildings. And that's because there's so much, um, there's so much that's broken in our built environment today. And we can't solve those problems just by building new buildings. We have to fix the ones that are already there. And so that's what I think of, frankly, when I think of restoration is looking out into a city and asking yourself, how do we restore? Um, how do we fix? How do we mend? Um, it's not just about having a blank slate. Um, sometimes we have one, that's great, but uh, it's not where I think we need to focus most of our energy. Yeah, and in this day and age and post-pandemic, it's not just restoring the building and the cities in which it, it they, they reside, but the people who work there as well. I know yeah. that's of keen interest to you. Well, we will look forward to to continuing to be in touch, tracking what you're doing at ILFI, and, uh, and, and best of luck with that. Lindsay Baker is the newly minted CEO of the International Living Future Institute. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Thanks, Joel. 
Okay, Heather, we have one more round of clips that you've selected, carefully curated from our Verge Net Zero conference a couple weeks back. What do you got this week? Two clips. We have one from Eric Larson, senior research engineer with the Center for Policy Research on Energy and the Environment here at Princeton University. Not that I'm at Princeton, but I'm in New Jersey. Um, and he addresses four challenges with accelerating the net zero transition. So here's a clip from Eric Larson. It comes from his presentation on the second day of the conference. We identified four of the biggest risks. The first is that we fail to change the practices and regulations that today prevent physical assets and infrastructure being deployed at the unprecedented pace required. Typically, an individual developer today proposes a project and then government agencies and local communities take a long time to tell them all the reasons they can't build it. We'll need something very different from this one-at-a-time approach to development and approval of projects. A second and related risk is not being able to mobilize the capital investments we need in the time we have. I mentioned that the transition looks affordable. It is, but unlike the past, much more of our energy spending needs to be in the form of upfront capital investment instead of operating costs. At least two and a half trillion dollars in additional capital beyond business as usual investments must be deployed by 2030 alone. If we're to mobilize and deploy such unprecedented levels of capital, we'll need to figure out how to de-risk projects for investors. A third big risk is failing to earn and sustain public support and social license for the needed transformations of our energy system. I was chatting recently with Art Cullen, who's an editor of a small town newspaper in Northwestern Iowa. His state has reaped significant economic benefits from wind energy, but Art tells me there is now serious and growing public opposition to wind energy there stemming from concerns about aesthetic, environmental, and other impacts. The fourth risk is political backlash from the loss of fossil fuel jobs. Our modeling shows that across the US, there will be many more jobs gained in clean energy than lost in fossil fuel sectors, but there are large regions like the Gulf Coast and Appalachia that see net job losses as fossil fuel industries decline. If the transition is to succeed, we will need to be especially attentive to how these regions are cared for. And the second clip I'd like to set up is from Ubad Kosar, the Deputy Director of Policy with Carbon 180, which uh, spends a lot of time thinking about carbon policy and, um, and so forth, legislation that, that will help enable the carbon removal movement. She actually talks specifically about the business case for a just transition when you're thinking about all those policies. So here's Ubad. Supporting a just transition can help build resilience to businesses in two different ways that I see it. One is by reducing that systemic risk um, from the unknowns that come with climate change. I mean, there's so many impacts that are going to happen. It's going to happen to everybody and everything, many which are still unknown, and it's happening today. So really making sure that we're accounting for that risk is really important, and that's very central to something like a just transition. But the second piece is also increasing that social license to operate, uh, especially with a lot of these sort of servant-based uh, businesses and business models that are becoming more profitable. It's incredibly important to gain that societal acceptance um, to your business or your operation or your organization, et cetera, et cetera. Lastly, 
the way that I sort of look at it is from that federal policy perspective, just given my background. And I think right now there are a lot of incentives and a lot of you know, government interventions that are coming out to really support the private sector and others in this transition. So there's a real opportunity today to get ahead of that curve before those stricter regulations and those standards that are inevitably coming are actually put into place. So I do see an opportunity to start thinking about this today. Well, thanks again for those, Heather. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters, a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love your comments, questions, and tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. I'll be taking a midsummer's respite, but Heather and Jesse Klein will be here next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Watershed. Businesses are critical actors in the race to decarbonize. Watershed is modern software for helping them turn carbon data into actions that can reduce emissions in weeks, not years. For more information, please visit watershedclimate.com.